Section 8 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 34, Kanpur, Part 1. During the later days of Sir Henry Lawrence's life, it had another trouble added to it by the appeals which were made to him from Kanpur for a help which he could not give the story of kanpur is by far the most profound and tragic in its interest of all the chapters that make up the history of the indian mutiny the city of kanpur stands in the doab a peninsula between the ganges and the yamuna and is built on the south bank of the ganges there nearly a quarter of a mile broad in the dry season and more than a mile across when swelled by the rains by a treaty made in 1775, the East India Company engaged to maintain a force in Kanpur for the defence of Oued, and the revenues of an extensive district of country were appropriated to the maintenance of the troops quartered there. In 1801, for some of the various reasons impelling similar transactions in India, Lord Wellesley closed the mortgage, as Mr. Trevelyan puts it in his interesting and really valuable little book, Kanpur, and the territory lapsed into the possession of the company. From that time it took place as one of our first-class military stations. When Oued was annexed to our dominions, there was an additional reason for maintaining a strong military force at Kanpur. The city commanded the bridge over which passed the high road to Lucknow, the capital of our new province. The distance from Kanpur to Lucknow is about fifty miles as the bird flies. At the time when the mutiny broke out in Mirut, there were some three thousand native soldiers in Kanpur, consisting of two regiments of infantry, one of cavalry, and a company of artillerymen. There were about three hundred officers and soldiers of English birth. The European or Eurasian population, including women and children, numbered about 1,000. These consisted of the officials, the railway people, some merchants and shopkeepers, and their families. The native town had about 60,000 inhabitants. The garrison was under the command of Sir Hugh Wheeler, among the oldest of an old school of Bengal officers. Sir Hugh Wheeler was some 75 years of age at the time when the events occurred which we have now to describe. The revolt was looked for at Kanpur from the moment when the news came of the rising at Mirut, and it was not long expected before it came. Sir Hugh Wheeler applied to Sir Henry Lawrence for help. Lawrence, of course, could not spare a man. Then Sir Hugh Wheeler remembered that he had a neighbor whom he believed to be friendly, despite of very recent warnings from Sir Henry Lawrence and others to the contrary he called this neighbor to his assistance and his invitation was promptly answered the nana sahib came with two guns and some three hundred men to lend a helping hand to the english commander the nana sahib resided at bitur a small town twelve miles up the river from kanpur he represented a grievance baji rao peshua of Pune, was the last prince of one of the great mahratta dynasties the East India Company believed him guilty of treachery against them, of bad government of his dominions, and so forth, and they found a reason for dethroning him. 
he was assigned however a residence in bitour and a large pension he had no children and he adopted as his heir siric dantupant the man who will be known to all time by the infamous name of nana sahib it seems almost superfluous to say that according to hindu belief it is needful for a man's eternal welfare that he leave a son behind him to perform duly his funeral rites and that the adoption of a son is recognized as in every sense conferring on the adopted all the rights that a child of the blood could have baji died in eighteen fifty one and nana sahib claimed to succeed to all his possessions lord dalhousie had shown in many instances a strangely unwise disregard of the principle of adoption the claim of the nana to the pension was disallowed nana sahib sent a confidential agent to london to push his claim there this man was a clever and handsome young mohammedan who had at one time been a servant in an anglo-indian family and had picked up a knowledge of french and english his name was azamullah khan this emissary visited london in eighteen fifty four and became a lion of the fashionable season as haji baba the barber's son in the once popular story was taken for a prince in london and treated accordingly so the promoted footman azimullah khan was welcomed as a man of princely rank in our west end society he did not succeed in winning over the government to take any notice of the claims of his master but being very handsome and of sleek and alluring manners he became a favourite in the drawing-rooms of the metropolis and was under the impression that an unlimited number of english women of rank were dying with love for him on his way home he visited constantinople and the crimea it was then a dark hour for the fortunes of england in the crimea and azimullah khan swallowed with glad and greedy ear all the alarmist rumours that were afloat in stamboul about the decay of england's strength and the impending domination of russian power over europe and asia in the crimea itself azimullah had some opportunity of seeing how the campaign was going and it is not surprising that with his prepossessions and his hopes he interpreted everything he saw as a threatened disaster for the arms of england mr russell the correspondent of the times made the acquaintance of azimullah khan in constantinople and afterwards met him in the crimea and has borne testimony to the fact that along with the young mohammedan's boasts of his conquests of english women were mingled a good many grave and sinister predictions as to the prospects of england's empire the western visit of this man was not an event without important consequences he doubtless reported to his master that the strength of england was on the wane and while stimulating his hatred and revenge stimulated also his confidence in the chances of an effort to gratify both azimullah khan did afterwards as it will be seen make some grim and genuine havoc among english ladies the most bloodthirsty massacre of the whole mutiny is with good reason ascribed to his instigation with azimullah khan's mission and its results ended the hopes of nana sahib for the success of his claims and began we may presume his resolve to be revenged nana sahib although his claim on the english government was not allowed was still rich he had a large private property of the man who had adopted him and he had the residence at bitour 
he kept up a sort of princely state he never visited Kanpur, the reason being it is believed that he would not have been received there with princely honours but he was especially lavish of his attentions to english visitors and his invitations went far and wide among the military and civil servants of the crown and the company he cultivated the society of english men and women he showered his civilities upon them he did not speak or even understand english but he took a great interest in english history customs and literature he was luxurious in the most thoroughly oriental fashion and oriental luxury implies a great deal more than any experience of western luxury would suggest at the time with which we are now dealing he was only about thirty-six years of age but he was prematurely heavy and fat and seemed to be as incapable of active exertion as of unkindly feeling there can be little doubt that all this time he was a dissembler of more than common eastern dissimulation it appears almost certain that while he was lavishing his courtesies and kindnesses upon englishmen without discrimination his heart was burning with a hatred to the whole british race a sense of his wrongs had eaten him up it is a painful thing to say but it is necessary to the truth of this history that his wrongs were genuine he had been treated with injustice according to all the recognized usages of his race and his religion he had a claim indefeasible in justice to the succession which had been unfairly and unwisely denied to him it was to nana sahib then that poor old sir hugh wheeler in the hour of his distress applied for assistance most gladly we can well believe did the nana come he established himself in Kanpur with his guns and his soldiers sir hugh wheeler had taken refuge when the mutiny broke out in an old military hospital with mud walls scarcely four feet high hastily thrown up around it and a few guns of various calibre placed in position on the so-called entrenchments everything seemed to have been against our people in this hour of terror sir hugh wheeler might have chosen a far better refuge in the magazine in a different quarter of Kanpur, but it appeared destined that the mutineers should have this chance too as they had every other the english commander selected his place in the worst position and hardly capable of defence within his almost shadowy and certainly crumbling entrenchments were gathered about a thousand persons of whom four hundred and sixty-five were men of every age and profession the married women and grown daughters were about two hundred and eighty the children about the same number of the men there were probably four hundred who could fight it can never be made quite clear whether nana sahib had in the beginning any idea of affecting to help the englishman if any object of his could have been served by his assuming such a part for any given length of time or until any particular moment arrived he assuredly would not have been wanting in patient dissimulation but almost as soon as his presence became known in Kanpur, he was surrounded by the mutineers who insisted that he must make common cause with them and become one of their leaders he put himself at their disposal at first their idea was that he should lead them on to delhi the recognized centre of the revolt 
but he was urged by some of his advisers and especially by azimullah khan not to allow all his personal pretensions to be lost in the cause of delhi and his individual influence to be absorbed into the court of the grand mogul he was advised to make himself a great man in the first instance by conquering the country all round Kanpur, and overcome by these persuasions and by the promptings of personal ambition he prevailed upon the mutineers not to leave the city until they had first scoured these english thence the nana therefore became the recognized chief of the Kanpur movement let us do justice even to nana sahib it will be hard to say a word for him after this let us now observe that he gave notice to sir hugh wheeler that if the entrenchments were not surrendered they would be instantly attacked they were attacked a general assault was made upon the miserable mud walls on june twelfth but the resistance was heroic and the assault failed it was after that assault that the garrison succeeded in sending a message to sir henry lawrence at lucknow craving for the aid which it was absolutely impossible for him to give from that time the fire of the mutineer army on the english entrenchments never ceased Kanpur was alive with all the ruffianism of the region it became an alsatia for the scoundrels and jailbirds of the country round and of the province of oued all these scoundrels took their turn at the pleasant and comparatively safe amusement of keeping up the fire on the english people behind the mud walls whenever a regular attack was made the assailants invariably came to grief the little garrison thinning in numbers every day and almost every hour held out with splendid obstinacy and always sent those who assailed it scampering back except of course for those assailants as perforce kept their ground by the persuasion of the english bullets the little population of women and children behind the entrenchments had no roof to shelter them from the fierce indian sun they cowered under the scanty shadow of the little walls often at imminent peril of the unceasing sepoy bullets the only water for their drinking was to be had from a single well at which the guns of the assailants were unceasingly levelled to go to the well and draw water became the task of self-sacrificing heroes who might with better chances of safety have led a forlorn hope the water which the fainting women and children drank might have seemed to be reddened by blood for only at the price of blood was it ever obtained it may seem a trivial detail but it will count for much in a history of the sufferings of delicately nurtured english women that from the beginning of the siege of the Kanpur entrenchments to its tragic end there was not as mr trevelyan puts it one spongeful of water to be had for the purposes of personal cleanliness the inmates of that ghastly garrison were dying like flies one does not know which to call the greater the sufferings of the women or the bravery of the men the nana was joined by a large body of the oed soldiers believed to be among the best fighting men that india could produce these made a grand assault on the entrenchments and these too were driven back by the indomitable garrison who were hourly diminishing in numbers in food in ammunition in everything but courage and determination to fight the repulse of the oed men made a deep impression on the mutineers a conviction began to spread abroad 
that it was of no use attempting to conquer these terrible British sahibs, that as long as one of them was alive he would be as formidable as a wild beast in his lair. The sepoys became unwilling to come too near to the low crumbling walls of the entrenchment. Those walls might have been leaped over as easily as that of Romulus, but of what avail to know that, when from behind them always came the fatal fire of the Englishmen? It was no longer easy to get the mutineers to attempt anything like an assault. They argued that when the Oed men could do nothing, it was hardly of any use for others to try. The English themselves began to show a perplexing kind of aggressive enterprise, and took to making little sallies in small numbers indeed, but with astonishing effect on any bodies of sepoys who happened to be anywhere near. Utterly, overwhelmingly, preposterously outnumbered as the Englishmen were, there were moments when it began to seem almost possible that they might actually keep back their assailants until some English army could come to their assistance and take a terrible vengeance upon Kanpur. Meanwhile, the influence of the Nana began sensibly to wane. They who accept the responsibility of undertakings like his soon come to know that they hold their place only on conditions of immediate success. Only great organizations with roots of system firmly fixed can afford to wait and to look over disappointment. Nana Sahib began to find that he could not take by assault those wretched entrenchments, and he could not wait to starve the garrison out. He therefore resolved to treat with the English, the terms it is believed were arranged by the advice and assistance of Tantiatopi, his lieutenant, and Azimullah Khan, the favorite of English drawing-rooms. An offer was sent to the entrenchments, the terms of which are worthy of notice. All those, it said, who are in no way connected with the acts of Lord Dalhousie, and who are willing to lay down their arms, shall receive a safe passage to Allahabad. End of section 8